Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 37. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. Yeah, we've got issue 12 coming together. 12. Yeah. I was thinking, so I wrote this uh, this long thing that I ended up deleting, but you know, like people think of like 10, the number 10 should yeah. be like this milestone. Yeah. But I, was thinking of, but I was thinking 12 is even more important because when you think about proportionality Ooh. and units of 12, yeah. the 12 is the whole. But if you have uh, like like 12 inches and a foot, yes, so 12 true. is actually the whole, not 10. And 10 is metric type thinking. Yeah. So yeah. 10, issue 10, who cares? Yeah, issue this 12. Is issue 12, it's the big one. Wow. I'm glad you've put that together. And then deleted it because it, it was just un- incoherent. But okay, uh, yeah, uh, issue twelve is exciting. Um, we have been getting uh, the manuscripts from our authors, mm-hmm. um, and we uh, there are a couple pieces in particular that we've been antsy to get uh, get in print. We actually just bought a tool, yeah. on eBay yeah. from the other side of the world because we're so excited yeah. about this new article. It's going to uh, be, um, you know, really cool. Like we always say, um, yeah. So there's there's stuff coming in. We're getting photos from our authors. We've been um, had some some good phone calls recently with authors, and uh, their their stuff's coming in and coming together. And in January, that's when we really sit down and start uh, to do, go through the the content editing and to to pull things together, and then yep. we we'll start to look for images and contact museums and get permissions and yeah it's a fun process yeah uh it's it's almost as fun i think it is as fun as woodworking it's a very yeah. creative super creative thing yeah um so it's it's creative uh it's a creative activity that celebrates other people doing creative activity mm-hmm. yeah which is <laughs> it's so great in its own light Hey, yeah. I just thought of something. What? A clock face is divided into 12 hours. I know. Yeah. I, I thought of that. Mind blown. Yeah, the whole universe is built on 12. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's pretty cool too. Yep. Um, so uh, in other news around here, I'm looking out the window and I can see that there is now a roof on the smithy. Yep. As in a shingled or shake roof. An actual finished roof. Water repelling roof. Yep. So that took us... Uh, Quite a long time to get to, but once we got on there, it was quick. Yeah. So uh, big, thick cedar shakes. Yeah, the the far side was just a few days mm-hmm. to for the two of us to do the whole thing, two including days. staging. Um, yep. So that it's amazing how fast a project can go when you devote like the whole day to it. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> that's the kicker. That's good. We were always on the near side, the side that we can see looking out from the main shop here. We were always like oh, let's go, like, spend the rest of the day on it. And we had, like, an hour left. Or we'd go out and spend, you know, an hour and a half. And that just doesn't get you very far because no. so much of it is the the uh, getting prepared, bringing materials up, and then uh, clean up at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. it's become super inefficient when three-quarters of your time is in those steps and not actually in <laughs> nailing up shingles. So uh, we got it done just in time for the snow to fly. Yep. So. Um, and then uh, if you listen to the last episode where we were talking about the, the metaverse and uh, some of those things, uh, we talked about our, our brand new thing that we launched called the M&T Daily Dispatch. 
um, and this is sort of a, uh, we're calling it like a fire hose of information. It's just this daily, a couple times a day, we're sending information out, uh, five, 10 minute videos and pictures and descriptions of stuff. It's all the stuff that we couldn't fit onto the blog or in articles or whatever. And, you know, it was a new idea that we thought would be great. Kind of interested to try it, mm-hmm. launched it, and holy smokes, the thing is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's like great. Tons of comments from people, lots of back and forth, requests for more stuff. And so we'll just turn around that day and then, oh, sure, yeah, here's a video all about knives at the bench or yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, we just had um, one uh, a few days ago. Uh, Joshua put up a book recommendation. And within the comments of that, there were other requests for books. And so um, today we just filmed another book recommendation that will probably be going up next week um, about one of those requested books. And so yeah. like we we feel like it's so valuable to be able to share the, the resources here that we have. And, and after this podcast, we're going to go outside and get this board that we're yeah. trying to get to cup a different yeah. direction and just for these videos for the dispatch. So uh, we've been, I don't think spending too much time on it, but we've been spending a lot of time <laughs> yeah. uh, putting content together for uh, folks following the dispatch. So if you're interested, that's mtdailydispatch.com. Also, if you jump on our regular website, mortisintendedmag.com, you can find the link to that. But the dispatch is here to stay. Yeah, uh, Lots of information there. So um, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, we think you're going to like the dispatch even more. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a growing number of... Um, people over there who have signed up to follow it and oh. uh, who are talking with each other and, and just uh, getting involved in the conversation. It's taking so, on a life of its own. It's like yeah. every day, it's like another person's following, another person, another yeah. person. It's just like, oh yeah, this, you know. It's really cool. It's exciting. So uh, yeah, today we wanted to talk about uh, something. We have our uh, Mortison Tenant Apprenticeship Program underway right now. We're in week two um, and we had done uh, spent week one looking at uh, at sharpening yeah at, at honing in particular the grinding is part of it but of course a lot of the hand skills are wrapped up with the honing and we teach freehand honing for bench tools for bench planes and yep. stuff and even chisels um, and I think a lot of people uh, are not used to that and so we wanted to talk today about freehand honing uh, yeah. What it is, why we do it, why we think it's valuable, and some of the the ups and downs yeah. of our yeah. journey. Because, you know, sharpening is one of these areas that, uh, you know, in conversation sometimes woodworkers fear to tread. Or maybe the opposite is true, that they go in and feel very strong about their sharpening uh, opinions. And so if you're a, a beginner, it can be pretty overwhelming to know what yeah. to... Uh, who to believe, what to do. Yeah. Um, you know, sharpening, it, like like we say, sharpening is kind of like doing the laundry because you can kind of catch up on it, but you're never really done. There's always, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you're done, you turn around and there's more to do. Um, yeah. Not to say that it's just a, a terrible thing or monotonous or, or and something to be avoided, but that it's something that you got to get comfortable doing. Yeah. Um, because you're, if you're a woodworker, you're go- going to be sharpening for your life. You know, you're going to yeah. be wanting to keep your tools sharp. So settling into a method is is necessary. In, in a method that just kind of flows into your regular workflow. Yeah. Um, one of our authors in the past, Spencer Nelson, 
he was talking about his time as he was learning woodworking, his mentor told him that woodworking or that sharpening is woodworking. Yeah. It's a part of woodworking. And it really, he was talking about how much it helped him. And I, it just stuck with me. I can't get that out of my head. It is woodworking. That uh, sharpening is woodworking. You mm-hmm. don't want to say, I want to get done with sharpening so I can get back to woodworking. Right. No, no, I don't think you get it. Yeah. <laughs> that is part of the whole process. It's like saying, I want to be done planing because I want to get to my Into woodworking. woodworking. Yeah. Well, but, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we think sharpening should be embraced as part of the whole thing. You're going to be doing it. You yeah. got to keep doing it every time you're uh, shaping wood. You're you you have to shape the the edge. You're shape steel to shape wood. So yeah. almost um, nothing that you can do, like almost no skill that you can learn, has as direct an effect on the quality of your work right. as sharpening. So um, yeah, we want to talk about this method uh, that that we use and and that we teach, uh, freehand honing. Um, first, I wanted to to talk a little bit about. Uh, both Joshua, you, and, and with me, how we, how we kind of learn sharpening, the different methods and schools of thought that we've ventured into um, before. You, you actually showed me primarily about freehand sharpening because mm-hmm. I, before that, had these other methods that I used that were like the, the quick and dirty boatyard method of <laughs> using a, a honing guide on a piece of sticky back sandpaper yeah. stuck to a table saw. Sure. And that was... That was an adequate level of sharpness for like a block plane, um, you know, up to 400 grit on the, yeah. the sandpaper. Um, and so that, that was where I was coming from. I had some, um, I had, you know, sharpening stones and used them with the, the guide, hmm. but never freehand before yep. you showed me that method. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, the method that I learned was actually, um, we did learn the Eclipse honing guide. Eclipse is a brand, but it's that style, the single wheel. Um, we were introduced to that, but we were actually taught uh, in a little bit more of a, like a, this is at a, um, a luthier school. I was learning to build guitars. And we were taught in a much more Zen-oriented way, hmm. but it is the foundation of the techniques that we teach in the uh, apprenticeship program. But it was based. It's all freehand, and it's using the um, the the hollow grind from a wheel, and then the two points. So at the very edge in the back of the bevel, the top of the bevel, those two uh, connection points as this stabilizing thing. So you if you can picture this is a podcast. It's really hard to do right. working podcasting, but so picture in your mind's eye. Yeah, close your eyes <laughs> unless you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> or you're in public transportation. That's kind of weird. Eyes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, so rocking, setting the the top of the bevel down and rocking uh, the edge down, and then uh, so that you have the, the two high points of the bevel um, on the stone itself and going back and forth. And now it's actually oh, it's from like away from you and to you, so it's mm-hmm. not side to side, but it's. <clears throat> Front to back, if that makes sense. Oh, far away from you in front, and then coming back. And this and is forth. parallel to the edge. Parallel right. to the edge, yep. right? So the stone is uh, picture it uh, straight point uh, away from me, not horizontal in front of me, but vertical away from me. And the tool, though, is perpendicular to that. Mm-hmm. The chisel is perpendicular to the stone. And so with the honing guide, it's of course that it's different that you're running the length of the 
the stone and the the let's say it's a chisel is right in line with that it's parallel to that it's running the whole length right kind of like the direction it goes when you're cutting wood with it right like if it's a planing iron it's in the same orientation as when it's in the plane cutting wood but this honing method is 90 degrees it's perpendicular yeah. yeah so now obviously i'm sure you know you could freehand hone with that but you're kind of asking for problems because yeah, you dig in. Yeah, any tiny little adjustment, and you're digging in, and all of a sudden you just made a big hole in your stone, and your edge is shot. And yeah. So you can freehand hone with the the edge, the tool uh, perpendicular to the stone, and running front to back, <clears throat> away from you and toward you. Um, and when you do that, then you really there's not really much of a chance of digging in. Um, and the other key, so this is what I learned in school. And it's it basically, they taught you, so you don't want to round over your edge, so you start far from you, rock the tool onto the bevel, and pull toward you. Okay. Lay the tool down, yeah. pick up the tool, <laughs> put it to the far end of the stone, rock up onto the bevel again, and do another pass. You can imagine this takes forever. Right. Forever. Yeah. And so we've been um, using a different technique that's front to back, but it's it's basically the same idea. It's st- staying on the bevel, putting pressure um, down right over the edge. So I'm right-handed. I hold the tool. My left hand, my opposite hand, my pushing finger pressure down on the tool. But I'm putting the pressure right at the edge. And then I can bring it front to back uh, toward me and away from me down the length of the stone uh, rapidly, mm-hmm. um, very fast. And so this this uh, way of very quickly jumping onto this uh, onto the bevel and going front to back, front to back, really, really quick, you know, it's I'm not trying to exaggerate. I think two minutes, yeah, two minutes of yeah. honing, and you're back to you're putting your plane back together. Yeah, and that's you know the the quickness of it is one of the things that I was really that really struck me. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you use that Eclipse uh, honing guide. On a stone, you're, uh, it takes a little bit to get set up. And then as you're, if you're using it on a stone, you're basically creating a hollow in your stone, like over and over and over again. You're, you're working the same exact area. There's no um, degree of adjustment. Like you can't use different parts of the stone. You're only hollowing the middle of your stone, yeah. which requires pretty regular flattening. Um, this method is... is is great in that you can move around on the surface of the stone. You can go on the left side of the stone and move it over to the right. So you're basically using your stone a lot more economically. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making use of the whole surface area. Yep. Um, and it wears a lot more evenly that way. And even in, say, like uh, sharpening a knife, uh, because, you know, when you get that hand skill and you can hold that edge at that place and, and do that, I've actually used the edge of my stones for sharpening certain things oh, that I yeah. would be worried would dig in, um, then that way you can use the edge of the edge of your stone to do that too. So basically, you can limit the whole flat thing just goes out the window. Right. Yeah. The flatness of a stone and uh, being worried about the stone being dead flat is not really that relevant. Right. Anymore. Yeah. Which is a huge deal. Yeah, because I mean that's the thing when you're using a jig, it needs dead flat. If your little 
uh, center wheel jig is going over bumps and going down into dips, that angle is constantly changing. And so you can round over your edge pretty quickly if your stone is concave or, yeah. or not flat. But And of course, what goes with that is we use camber on our irons too. Yes. Um, so I have found that um, if for people who want to maintain, say, a plain iron to be dead square, they really don't, they struggle with, it's sort of like this whole system. There's like a whole mentality that we have that's right. different than the, the eclipse guide and the dead flat stones and the front to back uh, because uh, a lot of what we're doing is we're constantly varying our pressure down the length of the cambered edge that's ch you know changing and different. So it's sort of a whole different mentality that we're uh, trying to promote is people to be, sensitive to where the pressure should be, where right. the where the work is actually happening, as opposed to, you know, tell me a method so I can just input the method and right. then get the output. Yeah. yeah. I want I want a, a jig that I clamp my tool into and then I get I remove the tool when it's done. Yeah. Basically. And that's you know something that that you see flipping through the pages of any woodworking catalog or browsing online. There are a lot of jigs out there that are complicated and expensive. And when you settle into um, using these jigs as your, your go-to method, you're, you become pretty much st stuck to them. You, you aren't free to move to another system. Um, so we, we've definitely seen that where, you know, this, there's this great new setup and it comes with a three hour DVD and the whole system is $900 or whatever for the, the honing jigs and the the diamond stones, right, and all the different things, um, <clears throat> and it's 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 great if it gets a woodworker where they want to be, but it also does affect even the um, the type of woodworking we're doing. Like like you're saying, Joshua, it's a mindset. The way that we sharpen is directly connected with the kind of woodworking that we're doing. For example, mm -hmm. having cambered irons in, in all our planes. Um, cambered irons are, with, with most of these jigs, you can't really sharpen a cambered iron. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, just to be clear, for those of you who aren't familiar, a cambered iron is, is it's a curved edge. It's not a straight edge. It's a curved. There's a radius to the edge. And so you're, the, the center of the blade on your, your plane blade, the center of the iron there is cutting deeper than the edges. And if there's enough camber, I mean, really your plane shaving should feather out to nothing on the two edges because it's taking heavy in the middle and it's feathering out to nothing. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it really changes completely how you think about it. I think, um, you can use, you can, uh, people talk about not uh, knocking off the edges the very edges so that they're, um, they don't get tracking, digging in of the, the corners of the iron. But um, that's not really what camber is. That it might be helpful, but camber is actually a radius to the edge. It's right. more than just taking the little corners off. And so with the honing guides, you can just take the corners off. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably, I would imagine, you know, with the amount of, the small amount of camber we have on our smoothing planes, you could probably force that wheel 
guide to to do that. Kind of go that way, right? But with the with the four plane irons that yeah. we have, the the jack plane irons, the heavy camber. I don't know. I mean, maybe, but um, it really you have to focus. It's it's like thinking about you know people who uh, really like the um, the honing guides for their chisels and plane irons are really at a loss as to how to hone carving gouges. Mm, yeah. They don't know what to yeah. do. And, and I'm sure that there's some <clears throat> jig out there for honing your carving. It's very complicated. I, mean, I don't know how yeah. you could possibly even uh, approach that. Yeah. And so a lot of what we're doing, um, what we want to emphasize for people is we want people to understand, to, to develop that hand skill to hold the the tool where it needs to be, put the pressure where it needs to be, understand what has to happen to what is sharp. Right. <laughs> what exactly are we trying to achieve? It's not just shiny, but, but having those, um, that, that edge going to nothing, um, and not rounded over and being able to do that. So that, you know, really learning that method, developing that method, and then just picking up a carving gouge was nothing. Right. There was no, it was no yeah, difference. The mystery it's the same is not exact there thing. anymore. Yeah. So, that's, Kind of the thing about the method is how um, how it is it's scalable into all edge tools basically. Like if you uh, hand somebody one of these these jigs, one of these guides, and say, "Okay, now sharpen this carving hatchet," yeah, like, you're at a loss. What I don't even know how to yeah. how to start. Um, but this method allows for you know you can do uh, draw knives and things like that. It's just the understanding of of what's going on with the edge and what's going on with the stone. Um, so yeah, speaking of stones, uh, another in the area of endless debate of woodworkers is what's the best kind of stone. And I don't know that we'll answer it, but we can talk about like oil stones and water stones and diamond plates and sandpaper. If you want to go there, (laughs) if you want to, if you want to go there. (laughs) Um, so we, we have, uh, water stones in the shop. Yep. Uh, and the reason that I use water stones um, is because these are the stones that my instructor told me I had to buy for the program. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so that that was a while ago. Mm-hmm. That was, I don't know, how old am I? It was, it was mm, over 15 years ago or whatever it was. Um, and I still have these same, it's, um, for those of you who want to know, it's the Kingstone set, the two-stone Kingstone set from Lee Valley. Um, the, the red one and the white one. I think it's 800 and... 4,000, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was the set that I had, I was assigned to purchase for school and I haven't used them up yet. Right. Which should tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these stones can last a really long time, especially when they're used conservatively. And I don't mean not sharpening, but I mean, not like if you had a honing guide and you're just digging a trench and you got to keep flattening, you know, they're going to pretty quickly yeah. go away. Um, but these these kingstones, um, you know, some people worry about them. You know, don't leave them in water; they'll get too soft. I have had my stones in a bucket of water for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, and the same bucket of water side by side, ready to go and every they're time. Yeah. So yeah, sure, you could <clears throat> gouge them up if you're not paying attention. Yeah. But um, but I think that it's such a, a straightforward, inexpensive, uh, effective, fast, really fast uh, way to sharpen. Um, that's the reason I like water stones. They are, they cut faster yep. than oil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, water stones are, um, unless you're spending a fortune, water stones are synthetic. So they're, 
uh, they've got the, um, what is it, silicon dioxide or whatever in, uh, in a matrix. So they're really, it's a really even material. And so it wears away to get new abrasive material fast. And that's when they, um, talking about natural stones, sometimes a natural stone can be too hard where it's not wearing away fast enough and it basically the surface becomes gummed up with steel that's been removed, mm. um, which is why um, people will use oil instead of like just water on those stones because the oil is what's needed to kind of float away uh, that material that you're sharpening off. Mm-hmm. But um, natural like oil stones, um, oil stones can also be used with water as a lubricant. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Moxon and Roy Underhill recommend spit. I they, use spit yeah, all the time. Spit yep. works great. Just don't share, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the um, natural stones are uh, something that we've spent a little bit of time exploring. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the local whetstone quarry kind of thing. Um, and Roy Underhill talks about... You know, about, that kind of thing that, that kind everyone of thing. does. Everybody just kind of goes and finds the <laughs> local, the place where, you know, the locals get their sharpening stones. Yeah. Right? And if you're new to the area, just, <clears throat> just ask. stop at the hardware store and say, hey, where's the local or the, quarry? Or the town office, maybe? The town office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Roy Underhill in his book, The Woodwright's Companion, talks about uh, sourcing whetstones from quarries. And he he starts out here, he says, it wasn't long after man began to use rocks for tools that he noticed their abrasive qualities and put them to use for polishing first other stones and then the newfangled tools of bronze and iron. So uh, he goes into great detail. This is a really fun uh, chapter of this book to read. Uh, But he talks about how to find good whetstone material. And um, we've done that a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh, had some good success in, in finding this these rocks that we flattened and uh, work great for sharpening using the same, you know, um, freehand honing technique, right? Because yep. basically once you learn the technique, you can use whatever uh, to, to, to sharpen your tools, yep. whether it's a chunk of rock from up the road or um, I have this, this nice little oil stone at home. I think it's a I think it's an Arkansas stone, like one of the white Arkansas stones. At least that's what it looks like to me um, that I got at a secondhand store. Um, but um, it it works really well, and uh, and it's just neat that it's just a, a rock from somewhere. You know, yep. Uh, yep. I I enjoy that using that stone. Um, but then there are also um, diamond plates. Which I think I've seen a few of those kicking around here, right? You have some of those. Yeah, I have one someone gave me. Uh, it's actually the coarsest stone uh, that they made, so it's it's really just for like sort of rough grinding, mm-hmm. um, and that's the only experience I have with it. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> he offered me a, a stone uh, in exchange for s- some other uh, of our materials, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I already have stones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't need more stones. <laughs> yeah, and I. Uh, and then so I looked for the absolute coarsest one there was, and I took that for kind of rough grinding or yeah. rough. Uh, instead of I have a hand crank grinder, that's my my six inch uh, bench grinder. Um, but just in case I didn't feel up to using that or whatever, I could use this uh, uh, this coarse diamond stone to sort of reshape an edge. Um, I don't use it all that often, 
Right. So I can't say I have extensive experience, but uh, I'm sure they work fine. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the biggest thing that I've heard about them, and this goes back to what we we're saying about flatness, is diamond plates, are they stay flat forever, right? You never need to flatten them, um, which is true because it's a, a piece of steel with diamonds glued onto it, right? The, mm-hmm. the steel is stay not, flat. it's going to stay flat. Um, the problem is, I mean, the weak point in the whole thing is the adhesive used to glue the diamonds on, right? Mm. And so, um, you know, the the quality of that adhesive makes or breaks the stone. I have this big four-sided uh, diamond stone, that um, diamond plate, that it has the four different grits on the outside. And um, I used it for a few months and found parts of the steel had no diamond left because oh. it just wears off the adhesive is actually what lets go so there's you know tiny diamond dust just going everywhere (laughs) um which is not ideal uh so um those diamond plates are really it is true they will always stay flat but it is also true that um they will eventually part ways with all their diamonds and then you'll have four very flat pieces of steel which won't do much good yeah, unless unless you do have a really expensive one or something, I guess. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> the the flatness of the diamond plate becomes kind of a moot point when we're talking about freehand honing because that's yep. that's not a tremendous advantage um, right. for this style of sharpening. Um, but there, besides the the fact that um, cambered irons can be sharpened a lot more easily or naturally, I don't know what you call it. Uh, organically. Organically, yeah. Holistically, <laughs> grammatically. Um, but also just the fact that um, this style of sharpening frees you from having to rely on a jig. Yep. Uh, which is something that we're, we're fans of. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, that's what woodworking is all about, is uh, developing hand skills. Mm-hmm. That is woodworking to me. Um, so I don't want my, my sharpening to be wrapped up with a particular jig from a company that enables me to, to make that edge repeatable. Um, now, I think it's one of those things that um, I know that there are a, a bunch of woodworkers out there who are very skilled and can definitely put an edge on freehand, but prefer to use guides because they have a really quick system. I think of actually um, uh, the Lee Nielsen system uh, with the the stops. Um, so I was talking with Deneb, uh, who works at Lee Nielsen, and he was saying, you know, we developed this system for so that people can get sharp edges repeatably fast. They don't have to be professional uh, woodworkers to get a sharp edge. So that makes sense to me. That's a really great way to say, just follow these steps and you will have a sharp edge. Yeah. That's what Lee Nielsen has developed and that's really helpful. But you have all these stops um, at different distances so that there's the projection of the edge off the, the guide to set the stop. So some people really like that system because even if they know how to sharpen freehand, um, they don't have to, they think it's actually a little bit quicker in their minds to be able to just quick set uh, off the depth. They're not measuring the projection from the edge. Um, and so I get that. That makes sense to me. Um, but I think for me, that is just, um, I, I, in my experience, I can go a lot faster freehand by just running over, 
you know, just grabbing the edge, walking over to the stone and quick start removing steel. Um, and, you know, really under two minutes, I'm back to the bench. Um, so I, I think to me, it just is keeping me always in tune with, uh, with the edge itself and what this particular tool and its situation is doing. And it's a, less of a, um, a formula applied to any given tool. It's thinking about this tool and what operation am I doing right now? And I was just, so here's a good example. Let's say I had my 25 degree bevel from the, um, the stone or from the, the, um, the grinder and I'm chopping in some hard maple and I've crumpled my edge a couple times now. Right. And I say, ah, oh, what in the world? Now, if I want to change the angle of my bevel, I just put, I lift up my tool a little yeah, bit and I put right. a little bit more pressure right on the edge so I can, you know, go from a 25 degree bevel to quick, just add in a five degree secondary bevel, make it 30 degrees by just changing yeah. my pressure a little bit as opposed to changing the setting and right. trying to say, okay, now I got to put a shim in front of my stop so I can get my five degree secondary. It just starts snowballing into, um, a territory that you, you feel like you're not able to just adjust on the fly. Right. And for me, that is the heart of woodworking is understanding that, uh, understanding what's going on and being able to change your hand so you can address that particular moment in the activity that you're trying to do. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so in terms of uh, something that we always look to uh, historic methods to see what they have, have to offer whether it's something uh, that we should consider doing today or we can look at it and go, oh, wow, that's, that's how they did it. Well, I'm not going to do it that way. <laughs> um, so uh, one good place to look is uh, Moxon. So he wrote The Art of Joinery back in the late 1600s, um, or some editions are early 1700s. Uh, but he's talking about uh, sharpening. Um, he says, before you come to use your planes, you must know how to grind and wet them. Wet, W-H-E-T, of course, is, is hone or sharpen. For they are not so fitted when they are bought. That's same today, right? Unless, well, there are some tool companies that are sharp right out of the box. Um, so every workman accommodates them to his purpose. Uh, and he mentions, real quick before I skip from grinding onto honing, but he talks about uh, angles, and I know this has been a, a point of discussion ever since he wrote this book, basically. Was he right in these angles that he said? So he says, the bevel of the angle, the bevel or angle the iron is ground to for softwood is about 12 degrees, and for hardwood, about 18 or 20 degrees. Um, so I will note in uh, the Lost Art Press version with commentary by Chris Schwarz, he's like, yeah, that seems a little low. <laughs> <laughs> and he he yeah. kind of leaves it at that. Yeah. I think that's a little low. Can you imagine how twelve degrees fine that edge would be? Yeah, I mean, I mean it might be about snap, twelve. Snap degrees. it right. Up. Yeah, you know, like about twenty five like ish. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Um, but moving on from that, because <clears throat> that's a whole. I mean, maybe someone listening has had experience grinding their plain irons to twelve degrees, and you've had great luck with it. Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear how that went. I'm not yep. going to go and regrind my planes nope. to 12 degrees, but maybe, maybe it'd be worth trying. So uh, this is what he says about wetting or wet stones. 
Having ground your iron, you must smoothen the edge finer with a good whetstone. Thus, hold the edge of your iron upwards in your left hand and your whetstone in your right. And having first spit upon your stone to wet it, apply it to the bevel of your iron in such a position that it may bear upon the whole breadth of the bevel. And so working the stone over the bevel, you will quickly wear the coarser gratings of the grindstone off the edge on that side. Then turn the flat side of the iron and apply the stone flat to it until you have worn off the coarse gratings of the grindstone on that side too. So very interesting that Moxon is saying, pick up your stone and apply it to your iron. You're basically yeah. holding both in the air in front of you and working the bevel that way. Uh, that's an extra degree of complicated in my mind. Wow, but, yeah. I but, mean, uh, I was gonna say, it kind of reminds me of sharpening an ax somewhat. Yes, exactly. However, even with that, I like to lay my ax down. Yeah, I like to sit and put the stone. have a solid point of contact somewhere, not my two arms floating around in front of me. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting because Moxon was, of course, writing from you know observation so he saw someone sharpening that way maybe it was somebody who didn't know what he was doing or someone who's really really skilled um <laughs> but that is that is not uh that hasn't been my practice when it comes to chisels or plain irons yeah but yeah definitely axes um uh, a quick note on historical uh sharpening stones at least in this country and in, in the u.s um it was interesting to read about how often um, sharpening stones in this country were European imports. Mm. Um, you know, there were the old, the, the Norway rag stones, the Turkey oil stones, the Melander stones from, from Milan in Italy. Uh, these were all, there was quite a market for these things in this, this country. And you'd see there's a lot of like period advertising for these stones. So I don't know how much of that is is just uh, advertising driven, you know, like sure. people were really motivated by these exotic sharpening stones. But then what happened was, you know, in the 18th century, um, a lot of local stones were being found in the U.S. that were at least equivalent, if not better than these expensive imports. So like the Arkansas stones and okay. our good old little Deer Isle whetstone quarry stones. Mm -hmm. Um but um, things like Arkansas stones now have a worldwide reputation and they are getting harder and harder to, to find because it's, be yep. it's being all quarried out now. Yep. Um, but what, uh, what was looked for are just um, stones with uh, very extremely fine crystal size and uniform throughout. So um, when people would go and look for whetstone material to, to source, uh, they were looking for something they could develop. They're not just looking for like one good rock. They're looking for enough of it that's uniform enough that they could mine that. And that's why the Arkansas mm -hmm. stones became really big because there's so much of it and it's very even over a large distance. Um, other places might have, you know, many other places have suitable material for whetstones, but it just it isn't occurring in as much quantity that yep. you could develop it. And uh, and market it, you know, for a large area. So, sure. Um, it's just a, a very interesting uh, thing to think about 
So uh, in the U.S., they came around to realizing that, oh, our local stones are, are pretty good. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that Roy mentions in his book is the fact that there are a lot of um, these old European towns where certain front steps have like a dish worn in them because they got this um, reputation for being a good place to sharpen your axe, right? Like somebody, <laughs> somebody's front step was just right for that. So I, I'm sure that it's some forester who's going out in the morning to sharpen his axe and he polished it up on his front step. And then he went and felled an axe and or felled a tree in record time and told his neighbor about it. And so his neighbor came by to sharpen his axe there. Uh, Cause there's, you know, like so many other things, uh, there's, um, there's kind of a magic about it, right? About how to get the right polish or the right sharpness on your tool, on your ax mm. to go out into the woods. It's like rubbing the genie in the bottle. Exactly. Like rubbing yeah. the edge on the yeah. stone and then the magic and you'll comes be, out. And you too will have this amazing ability. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, hi historically, um, it seems like uh, kind of like anything would go. Like there was not this um, obsession necessarily with, singular methods or singular thing. People would use uh, the, the sharpening stone and a, a freehand method in their sharpening. I think a lot of it too, of course, comes in um, <clears throat> the discussion about old tools and uh, laminated irons and things like that come into this discussion as well because we do use old tools. So they're, they're iron tools with steel Right. laminated onto them for a cutting edge. And so uh, a good portion of what we're actually sharpening away is iron. It's soft iron. Not hard steel. Yeah. And so you compare that with um, some of these, I don't even know what they are, but super high-tech, crazy yeah. hard uh, steels today that people are trying to like say like, you you know, try, trying to move the direction of like, how little can you sharpen? Right. Once yeah. you get this thing sharp, it should it's last a really forever. long time. Yeah. Which in my mind is just crazy because as soon as you lose the edge, now you have this crazy hard tool that's yeah. going to be, you're never going to want to sharpen it ever again. Yeah. So that's just sort of setting yourself up for frustration. Saying, yeah. Ah, I, I mean, sharpen. to the point where some tools that are like the electro hardened teeth or whatever on the Japanese saws, you just can't sharpen them. They're throwaway tools because of how hard that sure. edge is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, having that adaptability in, in old tools to keep sharpening them um, is a really valuable thing. So I wanted to talk about, uh, let's say you've just gone and picked up an old four plane. Mm -hmm. You've gone, you great, got a great, great deal. It's like 12 bucks. So that's, that's coming harder and harder to find, but you know, 20 yeah. bucks, you've gotten a, a nice old four plane with an iron that has life in it, but let's say it's kind of rusty and it's got a bit of a, a chip in it. How do you start? <clears throat> well, uh, first thing, of course, is to get the iron out and assess the condition. Um, but in terms of actually getting the edge ready to go, um, what you want to be thinking about with sharp is sharp is at the edge, period. Right. So when you think about, oh, but flattening the back and how far does it have to be flat and all that kind of stuff, uh, it doesn't. Not to cut. The cutting happens only at the very edge. So that's a really important principle to keep in mind because that helps you prioritize or focus all your energy where it actually is making a difference. And, and you can ignore the areas that won't make a difference. 
So uh, the first thing you want to do is look at the edge, look at, um, you know, if there's a big nick in the iron from someone who hit a nail and said, well, that's it. I'm done with this. Done with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Obviously, you're going to have to get rid of that. Um, And for a a four plane or a jack plane, what we're doing is uh, is between an, um, an eight inch and 10 inch radius. If you can, if you could draw that out, an eight or 10 inch radius, that's the kind of curve that we're looking at for being able to, uh, to get a four plane set up to do the, the workhorse kind of (laughs) work we need it to do. So the first step is to grind that edge into that profile. Yeah. So that's putting the, the tool on edge, grinding that shape first. We're not talking about grinding the bevel to that profile. We're talking about putting the actual edge on the stone, um, the grind stone, and grinding that profile. And you can throw a square on it just to look at it and to kind of help your eye see how much curve you have. Um, but that's the starting place. And once you get that that profile set where you know you want it to be, that 8 or 10-inch radius, then it's a matter of just chasing, uh, grinding the bevel to match that radius yeah. and getting your grind set to go. So you know you're done with your your grind of that bevel when you feel the burr come across the backside. Yep. Um, for those of you who have uh, struggled with sharpening and couldn't figure out, like it looks sharp, but it's not quite cutting right. Um, if you haven't heard, uh, sharpening is all about the burr. Yeah. It's all, all about, about burr. Uh, flipping the burr back and forth and refining it smaller and smaller. So you feel that little... Um, I'm trying to think of another word for it. It's a burr. It's like a little metal hook. A little metal hook on the back side of what you've just been sharpening. Um, And when you feel that on the back, you feel that flip over, this little hook, and it resists. Um, Then you know, okay, I've ground the opposite surface Mm -hmm. fully. Um, And so that's what you're doing with, with, uh, with sharpening, is you're going from coarse to fine progressively. So for me, it's my, my grindstone to my 800 grit stone to my 4,000 grit stone and I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm working through those grits and I'm going back and forth. So it's the bevel side, the back side, the bevel side, the back side. And you're working that burr back and forth, back and forth. And it's a you know kind of teetering on the edge of falling off. And I work all the way through uh, the progressive grits up to 4,000. And on the 4,000 grit stone, as I'm going from the bevel side, uh, as I, I described earlier, uh, the freehand uh, holding on the bevel method, I go from the bevel side and then flip it over and work the back side. And I'm putting all of my pressure right at the edge so that I'm forcing that burr to turn to the back of what I'm honing. Right. And so I just keep going back and forth until the burr becomes so small that it just comes off. Yeah. And sometimes you you'll see the burr hanging on by mm-hmm. a thread. It looks so like a um, tiny little metal thread. little metal thread, exactly, that's kind of like hanging there. And um, it was interesting to me because I think some people think like you kind of get the burr to the point that you can strop it right off. Oh, yeah. And, what, and that you're, that is not sharp because right. what you're doing is you're saying there's a little bit of steel here and you just rip it off yeah. with friction. And so you're leaving this ragged edge that's yeah. not going to cut nice. So you actually want to be removing that burr with the stone itself. The stone is rolling it right off. Um, 
And so uh, stropping can be helpful to kind of touch up an edge, but you shouldn't be using it to knock the burr off. Right. That, that's not, you're not done yet. You're still honing. Um, and so you're looking for that, that wire edge, um, that, that thread, as it were, to, to come off on the uh, finest stone. And then, you know, you have a sharp edge. And sometimes I will actually sort of strop into my palm somewhat, mm-hmm. just sort of um, wipe the tool down across my palm. Yep. Um, obviously straps are leather and my skin is also leather. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> my, my palm is like my, my strop, but, um, yeah, so that's one way to sort of get everything clear, wipe off all the, the grit, uh, from the sharpening process. Um, but again, for me from the grindstone to work through my grits to a finished edge, is it, it's about two minutes. Um, and if it's taking you significantly longer than that, I would encourage you to um, to try to work on the skill of being able to um, to you know freehand hone or j- figure out whatever your system is a way to get it done faster, mm-hmm. and if and find out where you're really getting hung up, because especially if you're dealing with like a you know a two inch iron, that's and you're only removing material right at the very edge. Yeah. That's actually not that much material yeah, it's at all. The tiny amount that of should material. only be really a few passes. And if you're just going on and on and on and on and on, you're clearly grinding something else away. Yeah. Then you need to be grinding because you should be long done by then. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people do get crippled by, um, you know, a desire for perceived perfection. Um, like some people are, um, they think that when you you've hollow ground a bevel, you got to grind that flat on your your coarse stone, and so you're going to be at that like uh, all day long, right? Wow. Um, yeah. So no, you wouldn't want to do that. No, that's that's adding a lot more work. Eventually, that hollow ground grind will go away, but it'll take quite a few sharpenings before you get yeah, a there. long time. Um. Yeah, but um, using that method is. Um, I wouldn't say it's it's idiot proof, but it 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 works for an idiot like me. It works <laughs> great, you know. Uh, it's it's really a method that that can is is freeing from the need to have an expensive and elaborate piece of equipment to to get a good sharp edge. Yeah. I think the thing is, it's just like anything, any skill. If someone said, "Well, that sounds hard." Well, yes and no. I mean, it's it's not easy to learn how to do it, but then once you learn how to do it, it's so easy. Yeah, it's so yeah. easy. Yeah, and I know that I'm not saying that sarcastically. That's the whole idea of skills. Yeah, you know, it's like riding a bike. Yeah, is it hard to learn how to ride a bike? Well, of course it yeah. is. But is it easy to ride a ride a bike? Well, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> and so I think that's that's just any kind of skill, typing or you know, whatever, um, it's, it's hard to learn something new, but once you, once your body absorbs that skill, you, you have a hard time trying to do it wrong. How to, how to to teach someone else like, no, it's not like that. It's like, I don't know. It just, you know, it just becomes so natural. It feels right. Yeah. And that's the whole, um, the whole thing with freehand honing is, getting your body to get to that point where you're just like riding a bike and it's just, I don't know, it's just so easy. Yeah, That to me is the goal. 
that's what I'm shooting for with woodworking skills is trying to get myself to that place that it just feels comfortable. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with, with learning, like looking at skills in terms of freedom, it's a lot like, um, you know, riding your bike with training wheels. Now you can ride a bike all day long on training wheels. I could still have training wheels on my bike and I would not have ever had to learn the skill of balance, but I could still ride up and down my driveway and up and down the road. However, it's a lot more fun when you get those training wheels off Mm -hmm. and it opens up a lot of possibilities for for fun and Mm -hmm. freedom because that skill gives you that ability. Um, But you might have to tumble off your bike a couple times before you get there. Yep. So um, I have, I've removed my training wheels from my bike and I really Aww. like that. And uh, yeah, that's great. I think that there are lots of parallels <laughs> when it comes to uh, skills that you can learn in woodworking rather than relying on a jig to do the work for you. Okay. So I have a question then. Mm-hmm. Uh, balance bikes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so the balance bike thing, my kids have one. Um, that they've passed yeah, down that's how, to each other. That's how all my kids learned. Okay, so a balance bike has no training wheels and it has no pedals either. Right. So it's just two wheels, but the seat is low enough so that the kids can um, use their their shoes on the ground. Yeah. And what's what's so revolutionary about that for kids learning to ride their bike is um, when you have training wheels, you're guaranteeing that the kid will never develop a sense of balance on the bike. Right. Because they rely That's on the, the problem. training wheels. And so yep. then you just try to take the training wheels off and they don't have a sense of balance. Yep. But the balance bike, uh, the kids can run along mm-hmm. and as they're using this thing, they're not going to fall over because their feet are on the ground. Yeah. But they're at the same time, as they're developing that skill or as they're using it, they're also developing a sense of balance. So I, what happened with all of my kids is they were running, running, running along, and then we were going down a hill. Yeah, and they picked their feet up. And they just up. picked their feet up, yeah. and they're going. And we're like, oh, oh, oh no, wait. Oh. <laughs> That's too fast. So there was no time. I never taught my kids how to ride a bike. Right. I never said, okay, son. So now what I want you to do is I'm going to let mm-hmm. go, but keep your eyes. Yep. Never once. Yeah. Never once. They just stopped kicking and started mm-hmm. going down. It was just this natural progression. Yeah. So my question is, I've been trying to think about this. What is the equivalent for freehand honing? Mm. Wouldn't mm-hmm. is there something that would be a good equivalent to like what is the balance bike of honing? Yeah. Yep. What is a way that you can if the training wheels are a jig that you lock your right. chisel in to fix that angle and make everything set, and so you yeah. all you're doing is giving the the motion. Yeah, the to energy the to push it. Yeah. So, what do you think? I've been trying to think about this, uh, and you know, what would be the equivalent? Like, how would you, how would someone be able to go from no hand skills mm-hmm. with with freehand sharpening to still get a reliable edge, but they're at the time they're doing that, they're they're developing a sense of how to get that edge. Mm-hmm. What do you think? That is a good question, because um, it seems like there's. There are two paths. Yeah. It's the training wheels are on or they're off. Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to find like some middle progressive teaching mm-hmm. way that people can, can well, get there. So I don't know if... So Moxon's method is an interesting one to me. <laughs> <laughs> Though that seems like... It seems like uh, you're not only skipping the training wheels, but you're going straight for the steepest hill in town. Um, it's like, hey, have you ever seen a unicycle? Yeah, let's go right. downhill. 
Yeah, on our training wheel list unicycle. Um, yeah, that is a really good question because that would be the ideal way to learn, mm-hmm. right? Rather than, uh, or maybe it's a, a different way of looking at it. Is this maybe Moxon is is the ideal that that we're aiming at, but freehand honing with your um, your stone firmly locked in place on the bench mm-hmm. is kind of like the balance bike method. It's true. So it Moxon is. is exploring looking at both your stone and your iron are moving in the air and you are engaging that edge mm-hmm. um, while they're both floating around. You know, actually another thing that I think helps is the question is really about um, having a measure of control, but also freedom within the operation to to, mm. to kind of overcome that yep. uh, control as well. So I think maybe an equivalent is is thinking about hollow grinding itself because it is quite easy. If you compare a, a flat bevel to mm-hmm. a hollow bevel, it's quite easy on a hollow to feel yep. when those when it clicks into place. Yeah, it's like tap, tap. Yeah, and you it's roll too... that tool up and, um, and then the edge comes down and clicks into place. You can feel the hard... Um, confirmation of the top of the bevel and the bottom of the bevel. Right. And that to me was how I learned freehand honing was feeling that confirmation, the click, click. Yeah. But if it's flat, you're not feeling the, those two high spots. It's all flat. And so it's a little right. bit harder to get that sense. So I don't know. I mean, if you all have something that uh, you think would be the balance spike of uh, honing, I would love to know. Balance bike of honing. Because uh, I think that I, I would like to see more people uh, work on freehand honing, but it is sort of like trying to ask people to kick the training wheels off and go for it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's there's a lot of value in that because you don't know uh, how much fun you could be having until you do try and take those training wheels off. And like I said, you know, a lot of times when... I had a bike with training wheels and I took them off. I fell over a couple times and mm-hmm. that's to be expected. Um, anyone who's, uh, who's willing to jump into that process should recognize that that will happen and they will, they'll mess up edges, but that's part of the whole experience of learning. Yeah. You can always grind it. Yeah. Grind it back and start over. Yep. Try again. That's, that's the, the beauty of sharpening. You'll mm-hmm. get endless opportunity for practice. Yep. And really, if you're saying, well, yeah, but my chisels are like $75 fancy chisels. Right. Well, then buy some cheap chisels. Yeah, you chisels. should get some cheap ones to practice, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, and the, you can get some pretty cheap chisels out there. I can't guarantee anything uh, good about them except for the practice value. But Don Williams said, what are they? Oh, do it. Stanley Fat Max or something like the oh, plastic yeah. handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don Williams swears by those things. He said they are the best chisels. The Stanley Fat Max. I think that's okay. what. He, yeah. Yeah. So there must be some good steel out there still in the world of mass-produced plastic-handled chisels. I guess that's good to know. And that's it. Great. Well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe. Uh, on Spotify or iTunes or wherever uh, so that you can get notifications of new episodes. Uh, and if you have any comments or ideas about balance bikes and, uh, you know, <laughs> freehand honing, uh, you should leave the comments below in our blog. Um, and we will get back to you. We look forward to interacting with you. Uh, so thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>